Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, just hours after Washington State's Democratic Governor Jay Inslee issued a statewide mandate for people to wear masks in public to discourage the spread of the coronavirus pandemic, a Republican county sheriff told a crowd gathered in a church parking lot, don't be a sheep. Well, sheriffs are particularly powerful, but they're generally overlooked in coverage about changes to law enforcement. And they're even romanticized in a public conversation that imagines sheriffs on horseback, somewhat renegade, maybe taking law into their own hands for, you know, the good of the people. There's not a lot of actual data on who sheriffs are or what they do. A new study suggests that a conversation that excludes them from talk of law enforcement abolition and or reform would be missing a critical element. We'll talk about that void-filling data with Brenda Carisi-Carter, director of the Reflective Democracy Campaign. They're the group behind a new study called Confronting the Demographics of Power, America's Sheriffs. Also on the show, when you picture a country responding to a pandemic, do you think about states fighting one another for life-saving equipment or a drug researched on the public dime being put on the market for more than three grand per treatment? Well, no. But when the topic is recipes for change, corporate media show their disinterest in actual people's actual lives and deaths in favor of political shadows on the cave wall, as when the New York Times ran an op-ed by a political analyst opining that Joe Biden, quote, projects moderation and decency, an image burnished by his rejection of proposals regularly debated in the Democratic primary, like Medicare for All and decriminalizing the border, close quote. So it's not just decent and moral, but a hallmark of decency and morality to deny life-altering care to people who can't afford it and to cut off people's health care if they lose their jobs through no fault of their own and to price drugs out of the reach of regular people. That sort of drive-by dismissal is one of my problems with media coverage. I got a second opinion from M.D. Gordon Mosser, senior fellow in the Division of Health Policy and Management at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. He's written recently on Medicare for All in the time of COVID. All of that is coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Joe Arpaio is running for sheriff again in Arizona's Maricopa County, infamous for reinstituting chain gangs, running an outdoor tent city jail he himself described as a concentration camp, and putting people in solitary confinement if they didn't understand instructions in English. Arpaio was found guilty of criminal contempt for refusing to comply with a court order to stop profiling Latinx people. They might now want to forget it, but Arpaio was a media darling. CNN and NPR both introduced him with his preferred tag of America's toughest sheriff, and he was pardoned by Donald Trump. 
But if Arpaio upsets you, a new report shows that concerns are due about the role of sheriff itself. How much do you know about their power and accountability? If we're going to engage law enforcement reform seriously, sheriffs have to be part of that conversation. The report confronting the demographics of power, America's sheriffs, comes from the Reflective Democracy Campaign, and we're joined now by Brenda Carisi-Carter, who directs that project. She joins us by phone from Connecticut. Welcome back to Counterspin, Brenda Carisi-Carter. Thank you for having me. Well, before we think about who sheriffs are, tell us a little about the particular role that sheriffs play that is structurally, if you will, concerning and inviting of abuse? Yes. You know, sheriffs are, I would argue, possibly the most troubling elected office in America. And that's really saying something. They are an extremely unique position. So they're elected in 46 states. Many of us don't know that we elect our sheriffs. But most states do elect sheriffs. There are 3,000 elected sheriffs nationwide. And then, of course, they have many deputies who work for them. And what makes them singularly troubling is, I would say, a combination of three things. There's a really shocking lack of accountability for sheriffs. The way that the elected office of sheriff is constructed and defined in most states really shields them from any kind of meaningful oversight. They are extremely independent and, for the most part, really answer to no one except the people who elect them. But unlike with police officers and police departments, for instance, where they're part of city and municipal governments, they at least have to nominally participate in things like getting their budgets approved and answering to city councils and increasingly answering to civilian oversight commissions or other kinds of accountability measures. There's almost nothing like that in place for sheriffs. The second thing that combines with that to make sheriffs really troubling is what we found in our study, which is what we describe as apartheid-level demographics. So sheriffs are 97% men and 92% white men. So when you combine the incredible concentration of power and lack of accountability with the concentration of that power in the hands of one demographic group, that makes for a very combustible and dangerous situation. And the third thread that I would weave into the troubling nature of sheriffs is, in fact, their very history. The contemporary origins of the role of sheriff can be found in the violent control of Black people in the aftermath of slavery, the leasing of prison laborers for profit, and in the resistance to civil rights. That doesn't mean every single sheriff in the country has participated in those things, but for the most part, particularly in the South, where sheriffs tend to be particularly prevalent and powerful, the role was really rooted in those very violent and racist practices. Well, and I think we want to add on top of that a kind of mystique about sheriffs that media, I think, abet, which is the idea that 
and structurally they are different than other law enforcement, but the idea that they can be renegade, that they can be almost lawless, you know, and that that's somehow for the good. I think Joe Arpaio is a good example of that. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the constitutional sheriff's thing, which is an example of you imagine that these folks are under the kind of rubric of civil laws, and yet there's a real kind of renegade mentality among a substantial group of them that really takes the sheriff thing to the next level. Can you talk a little about that? That's right. And I think the you're highlighting the kind of media representations of sheriffs is right on in terms of its relationship to this idea of sheriffs as kind of renegades or somehow above the law, but simultaneously being the law. And the so-called constitutional sheriffs movement is a far-right movement that has been around for decades and basically encourages its, its members and its participants who are, you know, sheriffs elected to enforce the laws to actually exercise their own discretion and how and whether they enforce those laws. So there is a significant group of sheriffs around the country who refuse to enforce gun control measures, for instance. More recently, there are a group of sheriffs around the country who are refusing to enforce public health measures like stay-at-home requirements and those kinds of things that have been put in place by governments because of the COVID pandemic. And their argument is that they are actually the ultimate law enforcement authority in their jurisdiction, and they can choose to enforce these laws or not to as they see fit. It's kind of amazing and surprising. And again, I think that lots of folks will think that it's some kind of out west thing that doesn't relate to them. And so it does seem important to bring it back to sheriffs in many places. They're doing law enforcement on the street, but they also manage jails, right? The role is not like anything that you might think of a general cop on the beat doing. It, it, it extends over various purviews. And the fact that, for example, a lot of what they handle is domestic violence cases, you know, where it matters very much that they are men, you know, um, where, where that's impactful. So while we're not trying to say change the demographics of law enforcement and you'll change everything about law enforcement, it is meaningful day to day that these are overwhelmingly white men who are not representative of the communities that they're policing. It's impactful, yeah? That's right. And I think when we see this kind of combination of extreme lack of accountability and power and extremely skewed demographics, right, where women and people of color are virtually absent from these roles, it really raises questions about whether the role itself is legitimate. So absolutely, I think one kind of avenue to change is to push for more reflective sheriffs, right? People who actually reflect their communities, who are women and people of color, you know, in proportion to the population. And there have been exciting and very promising sheriff's elections in recent years where women and people of color have run for these offices on reform platforms and have instituted all kinds of much needed reforms. And that's very promising. At the same time, 
the history, the demographics, and the power and lack of accountability of these roles really raise questions about whether it is in itself a legitimate position. There are paths to real change here that do run through communities and voters. But as you noted, the majority of sheriffs run for election unopposed. So this is not a robust, sort of competitive playing field. Sheriffs are elected at the county level. So many of us don't pay attention or very much attention to elections at that level. They also, like, you know, many local elections tend to really be determined in the primary if there is one because of the way the population breaks down in terms of partisan leaning. So there are all kinds of reasons why these elections tend to not be particularly, like I said, robust or have a lot of competition or citizen engagement. But there's no reason that they need to stay that way. And part of changing things is a media spotlight, right? I mean, is part of just calling attention to the particular role that sheriffs play and asking questions about it. Yes, and I think, you know, the long overdue reckoning that law enforcement generally is facing in America right now gives us a real opportunity to deal with sheriffs. As we all know, there are conversations about law enforcement in this country that are happening in a totally new way, and the possibilities for change are probably greater than they ever have been. I think what's important is that we understand that when we say law enforcement or that we say we say police, we understand that that's a pretty broad category that includes this incredibly important role of sheriffs, and that we don't forget that this isn't just about municipal police forces, although that's, of course, incredibly important. But for large parts of the country, sheriffs are the chief law enforcement officer. In the absence of a municipal police force, the sheriff is, you know, sort of runs the law enforcement system. So we would be missing an incredibly important piece of the deeply flawed and now under scrutiny law enforcement system in this country if we didn't understand that sheriffs were an incredibly important part of it. We've been speaking with Brenda Carisi Carter, director of the Reflective Democracy Campaign. You can find their report, Confronting the Demographics of Power, America's Sheriffs, on their website, wholeads.us. Brenda Carisi Carter, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. My pleasure. Thank you. Corporate news media take note of problems with the U.S. healthcare system's pandemic performance. You may have read about the recovering Seattle man who left the hospital with a 180 page bill for over a million dollars. Or the two Texas friends who both got the same COVID test. One was charged $200, the other $6,400. But when I looked at major news outlets recently for stories including the terms coronavirus or COVID and Medicare for All, I found only reports on Medicare for All as an issue. Some Sanders voters say they can wait four more years for Medicare for All. Support for Medicare for All is part of some insurgent Democrats' unabashedly left-wing platform. The New York Times calls support a litmus test for progressives. 
lauding a Senate candidate for staying away from it, while CNN ponders whether Joe Biden, quote, needs to appease people who want him to be in favor of Medicare for all, close quote. For many media, by the looks of it, health care for everyone is preeminently a political football, while for millions of Americans, it's a life or death need and a rallying cry, which the unequally shared ravages of the coronavirus pandemic only make more acute. Gordon Mosser is an MD and a senior fellow in the Division of Health Policy and Management at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. His article, The Case for Medicare for All Has Grown Stronger Than Ever, appeared recently on MinPost.com, as well as Common Dreams. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Gordon Mosser. Well, thank you very much for having me here. Well, early on in the pandemic, we saw some articles like, no, coronavirus isn't proof we need socialism, that cautioned against talking about Medicare for all in the context of COVID, suggesting that it was opportunistic or ideological to do so. Of course, maintenance of the status quo is ideological, but also it's just strange to say that a public health crisis isn't the time to talk about how we as a society do health care. In what particular ways does what we're seeing strengthen an argument for Medicare for all? Well, in the first place, it makes it vividly uh, clear that uh, many people cannot afford health care, including people who normally would have been in good health and not needed it. But now with the pandemic on, we've got a lot of people who unexpectedly need health care. And as you said in your setup piece, the prices charged are all over the place. Some of them are utterly outrageous. And if we had single-payer health care or universal health care, we wouldn't have this problem. People would be able to get the care they need. Secondly, without health care available at no cost to everyone, there are many people who hold off getting even tested, let alone treated, and uh, this causes problems for the population as a whole because those folks who actually have the disease but don't even know about it are spreading it uh, without uh, realizing that they are doing it. And the third problem is that, I mean, it doesn't create inequities in healthcare, but it makes them starkly vivid in television coverage recently, not right now, but in uh, March, there was uh, footage of hospitals in Brooklyn and Queens that showed obviously shabby circumstances and inadequate staffing. And then there was footage shown from upscale hospitals in Manhattan where everything was just fine. That shouldn't be. It seems clear it calls for a coordinated response. You know, you you can't do it piecemeal, you know, but um, coordinated and system-wide, those aren't words or concepts that are generally center stage um, in the U.S. There's a kind of like, we're scrappy individualists, you know, if you can get health care, then you deserve health care. And the pandemic really makes clear that, you know, you're only as healthy as your your sickest person. You know, we, we are a society, whether some people like it or not. Yeah, the lack of uh, a coordinated uh, 
approach both to the prevention and to the management of, a, of an epidemic once it occurs is glaringly absent in the United States. The incompetence of our senior leadership at this point complicates the picture because <laughs> one could argue that if they weren't so incompetent, the situation wouldn't be as bad as it is, and that's probably true. But uh, in any case, we wouldn't have a coordinated approach because um, we don't have any governmental body or any other that's uh, authorized to take uh, action, create a coordinated response. Part of that is due to the fact that we fund public health primarily at the state and local level. About 90% of public health expenditures are made by states and uh, local authorities, only 10% uh, by the federal government. So we get lots of movements here and there that don't have really anything to do with each other. Keeping things locked down, opening up quickly, you know, all these very obvious differences reported in the news every day. If we had a single payment system, then the federal government would be paying for pretty much everything, and it would have a very strong motive to assure effective, coordinated public health activities. Right now, failures in public health result in extra costs, primarily for private insurers. The federal government, of course, has to pay for the failures as they affect Medicare and Medicaid, but not as they affect the rest of the population, which is more people. If we had a single system, we would have good motive for the federal government to pay more attention and fund public health better than they do at present. Well, it almost seems willfully ignorant at this point to keep saying about Medicare for all, well, how would we pay for it? How would we pay for it? Because I do feel that Many folks have put a lot of energy into answering precisely that question. But assuming an earnest concern, you recently published a review of studies on specifically the question of cost of the Medicare for All bills that are currently before Congress. That's H.R. 1384 and S. 1129. I wonder if you could tell us in layperson's terms what that look at costs and studies of costs illustrated. In any discussion, almost, of uh, Medicare for All, once all the benefits are made clear, somebody will say, uh, yeah, okay, fine, but how much will that cost? And the short and accurate and, for many people, surprising answer is nothing. How can that be? The cost for U.S. health care under Medicare for All would be less than what it is currently, and how much less it depends on which study you look at. But if you look at them overall and do some critique and averaging, as I did in the paper I published, the decrease in cost would be about 6% under Medicare for All. Amazing. You know, more people would be covered, more benefits would be provided. How can that be? Well, the answer lies principally in two arenas. First of all, the most important one is the waste of private insurance administration. Private insurance administration costs about 13.2% of uh, the premiums they charge, a very large percentage. Medicare, in contrast, costs 2.3%. So if you can get rid of more than 10%, of overall health care expense by shifting from the inefficient 
private administration model to Medicare for everybody, you can save a lot of money. The second arena is drugs. Currently, U.S. government is forbidden by law from negotiating with pharmaceutical companies for Medicare drug costs, the so-called Medicare Part D plan. Forbidden by law, that is utterly outrageous. And under Medicare for All, of course, this arrangement, which is purely for the benefit of the pharmaceutical companies, would be removed. The estimates for how much would be saved on pharmaceutical costs vary, but it's at least 10%. It might be 40%. So that's the second arena. There are a few others, too, but those are the principal ones. And if you look at the sources of savings, despite more people covered, more benefits provided, you can drop the cost below what the current cost is. So we don't need to be concerned about the cost. And we keep hearing of course, from the private insurance companies and from uh, the pharmaceutical companies and from politicians, principally uh, on the right, that we really can't afford Medicare for all. This is nonsense. We can afford it. That's not the issue at all. shouldn't be an obstacle at all. You can argue about whether it's a good idea to have the federal government more heavily involved in health care. That's a different question. But the overall cost would be less than it is now. Well, and the separation of jobs and health care, I think, you know, in terms of seeing what the pandemic is uncovering or revealing or illustrating, the fact that if you lose your job through no fault of your own, you also lose your health care. It seems to me that is an opportunity, you know, for folks to say, well, why should our health care be connected to our job? So in other words, I guess I'm just asking, like, this is an opportunity. There have always been an argument for Medicare for all, but my golly, if you don't see it now, I mean, this does seem to highlight the flaws that have been there. Yeah, I agree. Let's put a spotlight on uh, the defects in our current system. We had 30 million people without health insurance prior to the pandemic. Now many people have lost their jobs. It's kind of hard to keep track, and I haven't heard or read any really reliable figures, but it's more than 30 million, that's for sure, now. I guess what we can do is keep the information out there in front of people, no matter what politician is saying it or not saying it, but just kind of keep the the facts on the ground in front of people and the idea that we do have alternatives. We don't just have to do what we've always done. Right. All right, then. Well, we've been speaking with Gordon Mosser. He's senior fellow in the Division of Health Policy and Management at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. His article, The Case for Medicare for All, has grown stronger than ever, which includes a link to his research review, appeared recently on minpost.com as well as on commondreams.org. Gordon Mosser, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Well, thank you very much. And that's it for Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.